The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. And welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC, HD1 Raleigh. I'm Marissa Jordan. Sadly, Nick couldn't make it today because he caught a cold and needs to rest up before finals week. This will be the last episode of Eye on the Triangle this semester, but we will most likely be broadcasting over winter break and next semester on Tuesdays. Keep checking our... Uh, any of our social media accounts in the next few weeks for updates. So uh, coming up for you guys on the show today, we have two pieces. First, our contributor Luke Sheely brings you a piece about the Duke power plant. And following that, Carter Poppy brings you an interview with the Prover excuse me, with Proverst Warwick Arden of NC State. And after the break, I'll be talking about this day in history and local trivia tidbit. But first, here's Luke. $100 million. Corey, what would you do if you had that money? I don't know, Luke. Something ridiculous. I imagine first I get my car washed, then fill a bathtub full of Starburst. How about you? Okay, uh, that's a good investment. With $100 million, I think I might even be able to afford my college tuition. <sighs> At some schools. I did some research... What $100 million looks like is this. If you stacked one $100 bill on top of another $100 bill, and then you kept stacking, you would get 358 feet high before you had $100 million. Wow. Why are we talking about $100 million anyway? So there's some people in Asheville that are considering spending $100 million. Well, they should give me some. Who are you talking about, and what are they building? Duke Energy is considering building a $100 million power plant. Well, it better be a really good power plant. Not exactly. Duke is planning on building this peaker power plant sometime in the next two years. And what that means is the plant would only be online on the coldest mornings a few days per year. Peak. Like a mountain peak. Like the highest point or when we're using the most energy. I got it. So... They're considering it building it. Uh, what's stopping them? Well, the crazy thing is Duke is actively working to not build this power plant. Duke not wanting to sell us energy? That doesn't sound like the Duke I know. Well, this time Duke is partnering with the city, the county, and community members as part of the Energy Innovation Task Force. This group is trying to reduce Buncombe County's energy use by 17 megawatts. Okay, and these people working together, reducing the energy, that means if we reduce the energy, we don't have to build the power plant, right? 
Exactly. Listen to a key member of the Energy and Innovation Task Force, Buncombe County Commissioner Brownie Newman, as he discusses what building a new peaker plant in western North Carolina would mean. So if this peaker plant were built, which would cost ratepayers you know, more than $100 million, maybe $200 million, I mean, it's, a big, it's a big power plant. Hmm? Closer. Uh, closer to $100 million, sorry. It's $100 million. Um, would, would, be, would be utilized for, for literally a, a, just a few days a year and even on those days, just a few hours. So it's a very expensive utility asset, kind of just setting aside the environmental aspects of it. It's very expensive to ratepayers. So Newman mentioned that the $100 million would be expensive to ratepayers, but I thought Duke Energy was footing the $100 million bill. Well, initially they are, but eventually that cost would come down to the ratepayers. Well, who are the ratepayers? Corey, that's you. Luke, I think that might also be you. If you live in Buncombe County, it's all of us. I'm Corey Thompson. And I'm Luke Sheely. And you're listening to Collisions, where we combine science and life. So let me get this straight. Whether we like it or not, Duke's going to build a $100 million power plant in our backyard? According to Duke, we might need that power plant to fill in gaps during peak energy times, where supply outweighs demand. Well, Asheville has fought with Duke Energy before, and other times we've won. This time, it's not about what Asheville wants or what Duke Energy wants. Federal guidelines dictate that Unless we reduce our energy consumption during the peak by 17 megawatts, then Duke will have to build that plant. Hypothetically, if a friend of mine, hypothetically, spent a lot of time in a tanning bed, could I just, I mean, he just stay out of that? Not exactly. Energy has to be reduced exclusively during peak times, so no one really cares about your tanning bed. Listen to Brownie Newman Talk about when those peak times are in Western North Carolina. It's typically um, for just a couple of hours in the morning. So usually from, you know, um, you know, it's 10 degrees outside and people, people start getting up and start turning on your lights and turning on the heat. And so from 6 a.m. until maybe 9 a.m. on these coldest winter mornings is when we're really maxing it out. Okay, okay, I get it. It's not about whether the energy is reduced all the time. It's only about whether the energy is reduced at the peak hours. Exactly. The Energy Innovation Task Force is working to eliminate 17 megawatts from our energy use during that time. This has to be done within two years, or Duke could begin construction on the power plant. Well, what are they actually doing? One of the things Buncombe County is working on is making county buildings more efficient. Buncombe County launched an initiative replacing public school light bulbs with LEDs. This reduces energy at the peak by one megawatt and saves the schools $1 million a year. Duke also has a new program, allowing customers who sign up to save money. By allowing Duke to turn off major energy draws, like water heaters, a couple times per year. There's also a focus integrating community. One of the people doing this is Brad Rouse. That, that plexiglass goes right here in this broken window. And so what we do is we've got window compound. This is Brad. He's the CEO of a local nonprofit, Energy Savers Network, 
Today he's in the trenches north of Asheville, helping low-income folks reduce their energy costs. Uh, what we're trying to do is create a movement to um, help the climate and help people, basically mm-hmm. by l- helping uh, lower-income people lower their energy costs and reduce their um, energy use. We reduce our carbon footprint and also help them out, so it's a win-win. And what we've been doing today is just uh, working out here in uh, Asheville on a home. We replaced a window that was broken that helps with the uh, keeping the heat in, and we've uh, tightened up some of the doors, replaced a lot of the uh, light bulbs and uh, that sort of thing. We still got a little bit more to do. Brad is also part of the Energy Innovation Task Force. For him, it's about the people using the energy. Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that lower income people have extremely high energy bills as a percentage of their income. Energy has become a necessity. I mean, we cook with it, we stay warm with it, we heat our water with it. I mean, it's really a necessity and yet lower income people don't have the access to the capital or the knowledge Brad's working with Asheville native Calvin Thompson. He's lived in Asheville for dozens of years, and he's watched the town change and his friends age. Well, our community as a whole, most of us are elderly, and we're living on a fixed income. And when you're living on a fixed income, you're spending more than you're getting. So it makes a big difference when we're saving money. For Mr. Thomas... Brad's services are invaluable. There are a lot of everything that we're doing. I've sort of called what we're doing "do it yourself for others." So we're, you know, these are a lot of these things are not high skilled things. I mean, they're, they're, they require a certain amount of skill, but they're not really highly skilled. You don't have to go and train for years and years in order to be able to do this. You just have to know what needs to be done. Well, Brad came by and he told me the things that we could do to save. And I had no idea that we had so many things wrong until he showed us what things we can do and make a difference. Brad may be working one house at a time, but the Energy and Innovation Task Force considers what he's doing vital to meeting the energy reduction goal. It's these um, really inefficient homes that use electric heat. That's really driving the growth because people get up in the morning and they, they turn on their electric heat, and, uh, and that's, that's driving that peak. That peak lies at the core of the power plant problem. The clock is still ticking, and the Energy and Innovation Task Force is hard at work trying to get Asheville to reduce the energy load by 17 megawatts. But for Talvin Thompson, it's not about the peak. It's not even about the $100 million or the environmental impact of this future power plant. For him... The problem boils down to a case of common sense. Well, to make a house more efficient would mean you'll save money. And that's what the whole deal is about, saving money and not throwing away money on useless things, such as heating up the outside. So we know that the county, the city, and Duke Energy are working together to reduce the peak load, but the big hurdle is these 17 megawatts. What exactly is a megawatt? Well, Corey, one megawatt equals one million watts, and those 17 megawatts equals 17 million watts. Well, then watt is a watt. We use watts to measure power in specific moments in time. For example, 
A 12-watt LED light bulb has 12 watts of power flowing through it when it's turned on. Okay, I think I get what a watt is, but I'm looking at my electricity bill now, and it doesn't say watts on here. It says kilowatt hours. What's that mean? Watt hours are actually different than just watts, where that 12-watt light bulb has 12 watts of power flowing through it. If you leave that light bulb on for an entire hour, then you would have used 12 watt hours of electricity. Your power company charges you for every 1,000 watt hours you use, also known as one kilowatt hour. Okay, so a watt is the amount of power flowing through something at any given time, and then a watt hour is that power over a period of time. So I've been doing some math. How many light bulbs do you think we have to eliminate to reach that 17 megawatt goal set by the county? I don't know, 10,000, 100,000, a million? Well, it's 1.4 million light bulbs that would have to be completely eliminated during peak times. Okay, okay, so you want me to go on the coldest winter mornings and turn off 1.4 million light bulbs? I gotta tell you, Luke, I can't even get out of bed on the coldest winter mornings. It's going to take more than just turning off light bulbs, Corey. If Buncombe County wants to eliminate the building of that power plant, it will take a huge amount of effort. But that effort is already underway by the Energy and Innovation Task Force, Duke Energy, and people like Brad Rouse. And speaking of Brad Rouse, if you're interested in learning a little bit about the science of how to save money in your home on your electricity bill, his website, energysaversnetwork.com, is an excellent tool. You've been listening to Collisions, produced by Corey Thompson and Luke Sheely.
Hey all, my name is Carter Poppy. I am a correspondent here at WKNC. On Monday, I interviewed the provost, Warwick Arden. He's basically the second in command at NC State, right below Chancellor Randy Woodson. I interviewed him for a project I'm working on right now on the history of the Division of Academic and Student Affairs. But he was kind enough to speak to me for about 45 minutes, so we got to get into some more general topics as well, which is what you're going to hear today. Uh, I think I'll just let him introduce himself, and we'll get right into it. Sure. So I'm Warwick Arden. I'm the provost and executive vice chancellor. I've been in this role uh, eight years. I've been at NC State 13 years. So you got here then in 2004, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And what was your role? I was dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine, of for, veterinary five, medicine. for five years. Okay. And then came over under the provost uh, job in 2009. And what sort of prepared you to take on the provost job, jumping from dean? Ooh, I don't think anything prepared you to take the provost <laughs> job. But um, so I entered administration uh, when I moved really from the University of Kentucky to the University of Illinois back in about 2000. And so it was a department head at the University of Illinois for four years, uh, then a dean for five years. And so I, I think I had a, a fundamental understanding of uh, faculty needs, student needs, how to build programs, how to attract and retain outstanding people. Uh, so, so one thing leads to another. I often say that um, most careers are a series of responses to opportunities. They're not planned pathways. So nobody goes to college thinking, boy, I'd like to be a provost um, <laughs> one day. Um, but these things evolve and opportunities come up and you seem to be suited to the job or not. And, uh, so that's how it happened. One of the topics that I got onto with Provost Arden was the fundamental setup of NC State University. There are lots of divisions that have lots of different responsibilities some of them interact very directly with students, others not so much. And he provided his perspective on the overall administrative structure of NC State and how students think of it. To the extent that um, any students kind of are thinking about the uh, kind of administrative setup of NC State, um, I think a lot of them, it just makes more sense to think of the university experience in an integrated way because they experience it in an integrated way. Absolutely. And I, I remember when I was a student, you know, first of all, I had no clue what a provost was and what a provost did. Uh, I barely knew what a dean or department head did when I was a, a student. And you don't think about um, the way you lead your life as a student in terms of the administrative structure of the university, nor should you. I mean, it should be. Um, behind the scenes in, in many ways and should be seamless for you. And in many ways, that's what we've been trying to do over the years, whether it's this merger of um, student affairs and undergraduate academic programs into DASA or development of uh, one-stop shops for students between um, financial aid and registration records and uh, uh, payment of uh, tuition and fees, you know, the cashier's office, trying to make it simpler for students to navigate and not ping pong them around different areas of the university. 
And so even within DASA, um, if you look at the way we shaped up some of the divisions, such as the student uh, wellness uh, division, you know, we said, okay, w- what really belongs together? Um, everything from uh, campus rec, um, health, counseling, um, certain career services. Uh, we tried to put things together that made sense from the student perspective, yeah. not made sense necessarily from an administrative perspective. Right. right. I think a lot of universities make that mistake. We, you know, we slice and dice things and then these become fossilized structures over the years rather than stepping back and saying, okay, if I'm a student here, um, what is my experience going to be? Who do I need to interact with? And how can that be seamlessly designed? I also asked the provost about how often he interacts directly with students. Not as much as I would like, but still a pretty fair amount. Uh, So I interact with the student body leaders uh, uh, very frequently. Uh, I'm a part of the Chancellor's Liaison Council or Cabinet, uh, where representatives of all the major student units meet with student with uh, campus leadership on a regular basis, including the chancellor, myself, Dr. Mullen, and others. Uh, I try to attend, for example, uh, student senate uh, once or twice a year. I try to attend uh, graduate student uh, events uh, when I can. So unfortunately, um, one of the negatives is that I think in a lot of administration jobs, the, the further you go along, um, the more challenging it is in your schedule um, to spend time uh, interacting with all of the constituents of campus. I mean, it's a big campus. We have 35,000 students and close to 10,000 faculty and staff. And, you know, to interact with all of those constituents on a, on a regular basis is a challenge. Um, but, you know, I love doing it. I think that the st- I'm always blown away by our student body. I mean, we have an extraordinarily talented student body. And the thing that always really impresses me is students at NC State, it's not just about their own personal success. Uh, They truly want to make a difference. I mean, they want to make an impact in the world. Uh, Once again, I think it comes back to sort of that think-and-do mentality um, so I'm, I'm always blown away, not just by the caliber of our students, but their ambitions and their goals to make the world around them a, a better place. And I think that's what one of the things that makes NC State unique and strong is, is that mentality. So I really love when I get the chance, and it's probably several times a week on, on average at one venue or another, Uh, to interact with our students, both undergraduate and graduate students, along with interacting with the faculty, and really have some really great conversations about how we can all uh, be impactful, how we can all take what we know, what we learn, uh, and have an impact on the world around us, whether it's our local community uh, or whether it's the world at, at large. And uh, the other thing that I love about our, our student body 
is the way we do arts, for example, here. Um, uh, we have students who are incredibly talented artists, but of course we don't have arts majors, so they may be computer science or math or engineering uh, or biology uh, majors, uh, but they're either incredibly talented uh, musicians or performance artists or uh, visual artists or, or otherwise. And so we've really tried to place an emphasis on that and give students a a venue for expressing themselves in different ways. And it, it all comes back to this concept, I think, of recognizing uh, the students are not unidimensional. They have multidimensional lives. Um, they're not constrained by what happens in the classroom. That's just a part of it. Uh, and we encourage them to really participate in the fullness of university life. I mean, this should be, for the typical undergraduate student, uh, we want this to be an amazing four years. We want it to, there's no way that any student can take advantage of everything that NC State has to offer. But to take advantage of the things that are important to you uh, and integrate those into who you are. Now, I often say that we want students to be different people in some ways when they leave as when they come to the university. And to offer students those opportunities, study abroad is another example. Um, you know, I, I think it's a lot of fun uh, to, to take this incredible talent that we have coming to the university uh, and see the way it develops and involves uh, and, and, and leaves as an impactful. You mentioned how students have, we don't have an arts major, but we have a lot of students who are interested in arts. Um, I've actually performed in a few different uh, plays for university theater, which is. Yeah, I love university theater. I think it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's immensely rewarding to be able to do that as well. Um, it's it takes up a, a, a lot of your time for a month, so you kind of have to plan it in your schedule. But um, getting to you know kind of bond with the people that you're acting with and all sure, that, sure, sure, very rewarding. I don't know how often you get to read Technician, but they did a profile a few years ago, and I was actually included in the story about. NC State students, specifically STEM students who are in the arts. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting article just about, you know, why, why people are so passionate about like acting or visual right. arts and all of this. And um, basically the, the conclusion the article comes to, the main theme of it is that um, people are really passionate about it because um, it's, it's like their, their hobby. It's their thing outside of class that they get to do that kind of energizes them. And it's different from having it be your major, being your academic focus, because you can kind of just do it and put your heart into it for, for fun and enjoyment. Yeah, and I think the other part is for universities that have, there's no right and wrong way to do it, but for universities that have arts majors, um, often there's not a lot of room for non-majors to fully participate, whether it's music, theater, dance, uh, visual arts. By not having majors in the arts, but we do a tremendous amount of four-credit coursework, minors, etc. cetera, uh, it does allow students from every discipline to participate. And also that comes back to recognizing 
that students are multidimensional individuals. Uh, you know, uh, you're a mathematician. You're not defined just by being a mathematician. A lot of mathematicians are also great musicians. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think that's amazing to be able to um, have individuals, whether they're students or faculty, for that matter, who are extraordinarily strong in a given discipline or a couple of disciplines, uh, but have a dimension or a side to themselves where they uh, are really rewarded by expressing themselves in in other ways. And I see that among the faculty as as well as the students. Sometimes it's really um, surprising to come across a faculty member who's a a great musician or otherwise, and you only think of them in one narrow way, and then you realize that they have a whole dimension on life outside of that. It's, it really makes it a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, you have a history in administration. You're um, the provost now. You came in as the dean of the veterinary school, um, or veterinary medicine. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, and you have a history at Kentucky and Illinois before this as well. So, I guess the, the question I have is sort of what drives you as an administrator? Because you have a history of being, um, like I said, the dean and now the provost and uh, being an administrator in these other institutions. So what's sort of been your 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 drive in the years that you've yeah, spent? Yeah, I, I think it's actually pretty straightforward and simple. Uh, I believe education, especially higher education, and especially affordable, accessible public higher education is the single most important transformative element in our society. And by that, I mean both personally and societally transformative. Um, it really saddens me when I hear folks be dismissive of higher education or question the value of higher education. I think that there are few things we as a society can invest in that have more impact in um in moving people forward socially uh, and in terms of building strong, resilient communities than higher education. And this has been clear in the development of this region of, of North Carolina and, in fact, for North Carolina as a whole. Uh, and I really hope that we continue as a society uh, to recognize the value of great public, accessible, affordable higher education. I believe it's a truly transformative uh, element, uh, and that is the central passion that drives me. That's what I really enjoy and get reward from. In your years you spent as an administrator, one of the I think one of the major changes that at least I've seen, probably that you've seen as well, is the change in mentality towards how student affairs plays a role in um the students' success, both inside and outside the class. Sure. So that's been kind of a major change in the mentality in, in higher education. In your years in, as an administrator, have you seen any other issues that have transformed the field of higher education in the way that that has? Or is, there, is that kind of the, the yeah, big thing? No, I think it's fair to say we're at a point in history where education as a whole, and particularly higher education, is evolving very, very rapidly. And it is incumbent upon us all, but particularly leaders of educational institutions, uh, to be willing to think out of the box, to be creative, to be innovative, 
to constantly ask yourself where higher education is going to be in 10, 20, 30 years' time, and how do we not just follow, but how do we lead? And so some of the major things that I've seen in my time, uh, probably the single biggest thing is how we get information, or more precisely, how we get knowledge. Um, If you think about it, when most land-grant universities were formed back in the 1800s, um, we had the information and the knowledge, and to get that, you had to travel from some distance, you had to stay on site for a period of time, you had to be in the physical presence of the professor, you had to be near a library that had the books, and then you were certified to have a certain body of information and you usually went back to where you came from. That's completely changed. You know, information has been democratized in in many, many ways. You know, the uh, smartphone that's in your and my pocket has, you know, access to every piece of information pretty much that was almost developed. Uh, Even in my lifetime, I I always tell the story that when I was a kid and sat around the the kitchen table with my folks, when there was a difficult question that came up, uh, the answer was always the Encyclopedia Britannica, which sat over in the corner. You, you probably don't remember. I, these, we these, have a set in my house, so yeah. I know I know what it is. So, <laughs> and, you know, despite the fact that it was out of date, the information mm-hmm. probably was out of date when it was printed yeah. 10 or 15 years ago, um, it was still considered, if it was in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it was fact. And now, fast forward, I've got four kids. We sit around or we just sit around the, the kitchen table. If there's a question that comes up, you know, six iPhones come out and, you know, everybody's Googling it and we have a million answers within 0.6 of a second. Um, and so the way we access information or more importantly, the way we gain knowledge uh, has has changed dramatically. Now, that is overwhelmingly positive, that democratization of, of information. But there are also some, some pitfalls in that as well, meaning uh, informational literacy is lagging. You know, it's hard to tell, to teach folks sometimes good sources of information from not good sources of information. Um, we also have all developed short attention spans, and we want our information to come in very quick, small, consumable bites. Uh, we also have a, uh, a system that has developed where we are more able to surround ourselves with views that agree with our own. And to a large degree, that has led to a lot of polarization of viewpoints on just about every topic in society. So whether it's um, news that you're getting or tweets or Facebook posts that you're getting on your iPhone or whether it's the cable channel that you watch or whatever it ha- or the new site you log into on a website, um, we literally are able to quickly pick and choose short snippets of information that largely agree with our preconceived opinions. Um, so there are some pitfalls that, that we in higher education are going to have to really watch out for. But I would say this uh, rapid access to massive amounts of data and information 
uh, has been one thing that has really changed higher education and given birth to online education, distance ed, then the questions about how we integrate that with face-to-face education. I think the other big change that I've seen, and there there are a dozen or more of these, but the other big one that I've seen is where how students lead different career paths than 30 or 40 years ago. So in my parents' age, and probably in my age, folks came to college, got a qualification, and then went and practiced that thing for the next 40 or 50 years. And now it is more than likely that one of our graduates will change what they're doing four or five or six times throughout their their lifetime. So to me, what's really important, and this is, once again, cycles back to uh, DASA and the integration of what happens in and out of the classroom, the way we think about curricular and the way we even we think about whole academic programs is it's not just important to prepare somebody to get that first job. It's important to prepare them for successful careers. And, and that's a different thing. That includes communication skills, teamwork skills, information literacy, uh, a group of certain flexibility, uh, an appreciation of continued learning, uh, interdisciplinary thinking. Uh, and then I think, once again, an, another huge factor for universities is to recognize that if you're a think-and-do university like us and you're really trying to impact the big issues of the day, uh, the big issues of the day are not going to be solved by narrow disciplinary discoveries. Um, more than likely, they're going to be interdisciplinary teams working together, bringing different skill sets to the table and learning uh, to have an appreciation for what others bring to the table, whether it be truly a disciplinary skill set or whether it simply be uh, a different way of thinking or a different cultural context. Um, Another big issue is, you know, we're trying to produce graduates not necessarily to go into a very specific narrow area either from a geographic or disciplinary perspective, but we're trying to produce people who become participants and preferably leaders in a global knowledge economy. And so having, um, having a not just a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary perspective, having an appreciation for diversity is incredibly important having a global understanding of what's going on in the world and our place in the world is really important. Employers expect our graduates to have that skill set. And so it's, you know, you're a mathematician, computer scientist, you're going to have a certain skill set when you graduate. That's important. But also having an appreciation for, for diversity, global events, our place in the world um, is going to be critically important for your long-term success, being able to work as a team member, being able to communicate, being able to uh, appreciate what others bring to the table. And so I think as universities and particularly as, as leaders, we have to constantly be thinking about where is this going? Where is this headed? 
and what are the skill sets that we need to be giving our students. And those skill sets are, are different from 30, 40, 50. Yeah. I had a pretty long conversation with uh, Dean Jeff Braden about yeah. just this topic, about the importance of interdisciplinary thinking. And um, uh, yeah, just kind of using the um, example of how my grandfather worked at IBM his whole career. Right. My father is maxed out at maybe 10 years in a company he's been at. And people in my generation are going to end up having even lower average of the companies that they. That's years right. Yeah. That's right. And that's okay. Um, but it's a matter of having that skill set that not only allows you to grow and develop and evolve and potentially change direction, uh, but to make a lasting contribution to the society around you. And the needs of societies change. If you look at land-grant institutions, when we were founded in the 1800s, what were the two big issues that we needed to address? Number one, how to feed the pop, our own population, not how to feed the rest of the world, but how to feed our own population. Second was catching up with Europe in the Industrial Revolution, and hence the very early emphasis on agricultural engineering. But you fast forward now 130 years, and those are still big issues we're less concerned about with feeding ourselves than feeding the rest of the world. Um, we're less concerned about catching up with anybody uh, as we are staying ahead in terms of innovation. Um, but issues such as global health, uh, uh, environmental sustainability, climate change, uh, energy sustainability, all of those issues are big issues that are going to take uh, us working together across disciplines and continuing to evolve and change our skill sets uh, to address those issues as they evolve. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to see our, our NC State administrators having such a broad global view of what, what's happening here at NC State. Well, I think it's incumbent upon any administrator. The Chancellor and I talk about this a lot at, at, at any university. You know, we all can fall into the pit of being incrementalists, meaning it's okay to be just a little bit better as long as we're a little bit better than the next guy and we're moving a little bit more up the rankings. Um, but at the end of the day, that's not going to be enough to get us where we need to go. Um, we need to really do some innovative forward thinking. Think about what is our role in building a stronger society and be willing to, to make some bold moves. And so, yeah, we did some pretty bold things uh, at the beginning of this strategic plan. Formation of DASA and OIED and the Faculty Excellence Hiring Program and the Faculty Scholars Program and a number of things. You know, it would be my hope that as long as I'm in this job, um, we can continue to have the courage as a university to, to do bold things, not sort of sit on our laurels. And yes, we've been very successful in retention rates and graduation rates and research funding and raising the endowment, and but not just go, boy, didn't we do such a great job, but really to be thinking about what is the next bold thing that we have to do to position the university and do the right thing for our faculty and our students and our citizens who invest a lot in us. Um, 
And, and, and that can be a challenge. Uh, but I think we need to constantly uh, be asking ourselves those questions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're over time. Yeah. But it's been great having you in the studio. Thanks, Carter. Awesome. Hello, you're listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Marissa Jordan. Um, so our first mini segment of the day is this day in history, um, where we're just going to talk about things that happened today. Well, we, I say, but it's just me in the studio. Nick, as I mentioned earlier, is out with a cold, but he will be back next semester. In 1095, uh, Pope Urban II ordered the First Crusade, which is obviously really important, um, for many reasons. Uh, in 1940, Bruce Lee was born. And then in 1942, Jimi Hendrix was born. So we have two important uh, celebrity birthdays today. And then in 1911, White House housekeeper frets over presidential waistline. And I saw this one when I was like Googling this earlier. And I was like, what on earth is that? So um, if you didn't know, um, President William Howard Taft was one of the largest presidents in presidential history. And apparently on this day in 1911, um, his housekeeper, Elizabeth Jaffrey, wrote in her diary about a conversation that she had had with the president and his wife about his his weight gain. So um, that's an unusual one. But yeah, I guess that happened today in history. So now um, I'm going to go on to local trivia tidbit. Um, so, uh, the homeless man who has become a national celebrity for helping a stranded driver is from North Carolina. Um, and this is a quick article from the News and Observer. The homeless man who has become a national celebrity after helping a stranded driver on the side of a Pennsylvania road is a former paramedic and hospital technician from North Carolina. Johnny Bobbitt Jr., 34, is from Henderson, North Carolina, according to his Facebook page. He's a Marine Corps veteran who once worked as an emergency room technician for UNC Healthcare and was a paramedic and firefighter in Warren and Vance counties. So that's pretty interesting. Good to know that there's still good people from North Carolina, especially, you know, who worked in our area. And uh, Henderson, I believe, is in the mountains. Or no, excuse me, that's Hendersonville. But um, yeah, you know, a local guy just doing good things. So it's good to hear about that. Well, that about does it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us on this fantastic Monday evening, assuming you've been listening to this live. If you're catching this on our Wednesday rebroadcast, good morning and good day. We hope you enjoy the show. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that you made that or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at WKNC.org. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week, right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors and the rest of the staff here at Eye on the Triangle. And be sure to catch us again. Well, I guess we won't be on next Monday since it'll be exam week, but uh, keep tuned next semester. We're thinking uh, Tuesday, maybe at 6 p.m. for our show. So keep an eye out for that. Um, And for Eye on the Triangle, I'm Marissa Jordan. And thanks again for listening in. You know the drill. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music. And we'll see you again next semester.